The other day I went into the newsagent and um, was able to look up some of the back copies and I found a copy of the Jerusalem Chronicle as it was in, um, on March the 6th, um, AD 30. It's in pretty good condition considering it's the best part of 2,000 years old. And I was amazed because I'm fed up, as perhaps you are, I'm not sure, with the, some of the press statements we see in today's newspapers about the arguments between the various political parties, especially last Thursday with the local elections. But blow me, in this nearly 2,000 years old, there was um, article after article about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were always arguing and bickering and trying to score points off each other. The Pharisees, as you'll probably remember, a group of about 6,000 who they were concerned about the rules and regulations, the laws, and wanted no ambiguity at all. Everything must be perfectly clear. So, for example, what about you mustn't work on the Sabbath? What does that really mean? Ah, oh, well, if I go on a journey, is that breaking the law? And they apparently spent months trying to work out that and to conclude that, yes, um, if you go on a journey of more than about 2,000 cubits, it's about 1,000 yards, you're breaking the law. Or what about work with the ropes and the <clears throat> pieces of string? Yes, okay for women to tie them around their waist, or um, okay for the wine caskets, but you mustn't in any way touch the fishing nets um, or um, anything to do with that, um, or um, with the camels, the, the strings around the camels. What about a burden? Yes, you can carry up to the weight of wine in a goblet, and so on, and so on. They spent and thought their whole life was devoted to, and God wanted them to be concerned solely with making laws unambiguous. But they did actually, these Pharisees, they did believe in an afterlife. They argued, as I've said, with the Sadducees, and the Sadducees were, again, a strange lot in a way, again, a fairly small number. They comprised the, the wealthy, the influential, often a lot of priests, and they would be concerned that they had status and power and money, and they would do anything to ensure that, yes, that status and that power was maintained. They didn't believe in an afterlife, and as I've said, they were always arguing and, of course, they were always arguing with Jesus, who didn't believe um, either of them. If one reads Matthew 22, there's a, a good account of these um, goings-on. And one day, the Sadducees thought, we'll catch Jesus out. We'll ask him a question. We'll test him. He probably can't even answer. And they went up to him. I think they're a bit haughty-taughty. Now, Jesus, now look, now come on, we've got a question. We want you to answer this. And the question is this. But um, you know, of course, Jesus, of the rule that, um, yes, um, if a woman marries a man and uh, he dies before they have children, then she must marry the younger brother. Now, what happens, Jesus, if a woman marries the eldest of seven sons? He dies, no children, she marries the next, and he dies, she marries the next, and so on. When she goes to seven, having married these seven men who've all died, whose widow is she? Bet you can't answer that, Jesus. Well, of course, Jesus was able to answer the question. And again, do read in Matthew 22 the description of his answer, but it boils down, I think, to you've assumed that heaven is an extension of earth and it's much more than that, it's very different from that. 
If you then think, now what happens next? And again, if you read Matthew 22 once more and Mark 12, you get a different version. I exaggerate a little perhaps to make my point, but if you read Matthew 22, the Pharisees, having heard the conversation between Jesus and the Sadducees, the Pharisees think, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll show we're top dog, we'll ask him a question which he can answer, He'll, you know, we'll show we're the superior group. Whereas if you read Mark, it's more a case that they really wanted to know the answer to the question they were about to ask Jesus. And the, answer, the question I'm sure you remember the Pharisees asked was, Jesus, what is the greatest of all the commandments? And Jesus, as you remember, answered, Ah, it is to love the Lord your God with all your soul and heart and mind and strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. Oh, Jesus, we've heard that before. You know, come, come say something a bit more exciting. The first part is in Deuteronomy and the second part is in Leviticus and they were well aware of that. People had read that. And then Jesus did say two things which really made them sit up and listen. The first was these two parts of the commandment are linked. You can't love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength unless you are loving your neighbour as yourself. Oh, goodness me, I hadn't appreciated that. And I think that probably took them aback. And the second thing that Jesus said was, your neighbour, you know that's anyone who is in need. Oh, we hadn't realised that either. And they were taken aback. They hadn't really hadn't realised that there were these implications in what, on the face of it, sound very simple and straightforward commandments. If you think about the word love, as it was in Jesus' time, there were, I'm no Greek scholar whatsoever, but I'm told there were three Greek words, at least maybe four or five, but certainly three, Greek words for love in Jesus' time. The first was um, eros. Remember the... Um, statue in Piccadilly Circus in London, passionate lovemaking. Then there was um, storge, a sort of dutiful love of one's parents, one's relatives and so on, sort of where you feel you've got to love them as it were. And then the third one, remember what the third one was? Word used here? Agape, indeed. A sort of, to me, a sort of way of um, living, if you like, a sort of attitude that one has, the agape attitude. But I guess if one really wants to know about love, you read again the passage which Sue read to us a few minutes ago about um, Paul's letter to the Corinthians um, 13, all about love. And that really brings it home. Every time I read it, I read a different word and understand something different um, from it. To love without envy, to love without recording the fact that your wife left some slippers in the bathroom or whatever... to really love forgivingly and love with all one's heart is something that I guess many of us find very, very difficult indeed to fulfil. Oh, we might make a gesture, I hope we do, but to actually fulfil it totally is extremely difficult. Jesus said, as I mentioned a moment ago, that the neighbour is anyone who's in need. And you, you recall the story in Luke of the um, parable of the Good Samaritan. And you remember how this, in Jesus' time, the mountain path, a, a steep slope, 
20 miles roughly from Jerusalem to Jericho. Um, Jerusalem, I'm told, is 2,300 feet above sea level. Jericho, about 1,300 feet below sea level. And this path goes down with mountains on either side and fraught with problems and with danger and, of course, uh, robbers. And you recall how the... um, Possibly the good Samaritan. Uh, we're not sure if he was. Some scholars think he wasn't actually a Samaritan, but it was someone maybe of a different colour, maybe worshipped a different football team or something. He was somebody different from the sort of person you would expect who would stop and help uh, someone who had the misfortune to have been uh, robbed. But the first person there, of course, was the priest. And oh, oh my goodness. Oh, no, I better not stop. I'm a bit late. No, I won't stop. And besides, which if he's dead, um, I'll then be incommunicado for seven days. No, no, no. Uh, I'm going on. I'm not stopping there. Then the Levite. And the Levite, again, someone perhaps you wouldn't necessarily expect to stop, but the Levite thought it was a trick. And he had every reason to think that if he bent down and attended to the man who'd been robbed, someone else would come out, some other robber would come out from behind the mountain and clobber him as well. No, no, he wasn't going to stop either. But as we know, the good Samaritan, yes, he did stop. Um, and he clearly had some store with the local inn, and uh, as you remember, I'm sure, takes the person who's lying on the ground to the inn, and uh, yes, I'll pay the innkeeper the next week when I, when I call back. Really quite amazing. And again, we ask the question, I wonder to what extent um, do you and I actually act as the Good Samaritan? Jesus said very clearly that we're meant to love each other as he loved us. And that can be very difficult indeed, can't it? To actually do things... I like all of Paul. I'm a great fan of Paul. And if one reads the... Arguably, I think about 13 books in the New Testament of the 27 books in the New Testament written either by or about Paul, they all look back. They all look back to either a person writing to Philemon or someone like that, or to, you know, when I was with you, I told you this, you really have, have you understood? You know, I better explain, I better write it down. They all look back except the book to the Romans. And when Paul wrote to the Romans, he was looking forward. I think he ended up in Rome in a different way to that which he thought he would. But nevertheless, he looked forward. But remind yourselves of the book of Romans. And throughout, it's a case of, yes, you must do something. Oh, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't go to church or we shouldn't read the Bible or we shouldn't pray. Of course we should. But far more importantly is to actually carry out the Christian life. And Romans, I think, emphasises that. We must actually do things. Oh, I'm sure the priests, I'm sure the Levite were dead sorry for the poor bloke who was lying in the gutter. But he didn't do anything. It was left to the Samaritan. I think to sum up that piece about um, do we do something ourselves, let me tell you, and I must read it to you because I'm not sure about um, some of the words. This is um, an extract from a book um, about a chap called Yoho Hiko Kagawa. Kagawa was, some of you may know, if you look him up in Google, it was quite interesting, but Kagawa was um, a Japanese priest. He was born somewhere in the late 1800s, died in about 1959, I think, um, and was converted in 1909. And when he was converted, he said, um, I want God to make me like Christ. 
And to be like Christ, he went to live in the slums, um, even though he himself was suffering to, from tuberculosis. Seemed the last place on earth to which a man in his condition should have gone. But he went to live in a hut in a Tokyo slum. And on his first night, he was asked to share his bed with a man suffering from a contagious itch. That was a test of his faith, but he welcomed his bedfellow nevertheless. Then a beggar asked for his shirt and got it. The next day he was back at Kagawa's coat and trousers, and he got them too. Kagawa was left standing in a ragged old kimono. The slum dwellers of Tokyo laughed at him, but he shouted, God is love! God is love! And eventually they respected him. He had actually done something. Kagawa wrote, I'm told, again, 150 books. It must have been some author, mustn't he? How he had time to write 150, I can't imagine. But anyway, and he wrote himself the following. God dwells among the lowliest of men. He sits on the dust heap among the prison convicts. He stands with the juvenile delinquents. He's there with the beggars. He's among the sick. He stands with the unemployed. We may assess someone by their bank balance, or the number of staff they control, or their intellectual and academic standing. But Jesus asks, how many people have you helped? How many people have I actually helped? It might sound a bit simplistic to say 1 Corinthians 13 follows 1 Corinthians 12. Of course it does. And if you read again 1 Corinthians 12, you'll remember, I'm sure, that it's all about the talents we bring, what we, uh, gifts we're given, the spiritual gifts we're given, what we can actually do. But it seems to me that then, by following it with 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is saying, I believe very definitely, oh, it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what um, talents you bring, how clever you are, how much you do in, in church. What does matter is whether you bring it with a loving Christian heart. Let me conclude by um, asking you two questions, if I may. The first um, is, have you, have I, got an agape attitude? Do we love people as best we can, and particularly those who differ from ourselves? Those who differ perhaps, not just simple things like which colour hymn book shall we use, but the much more difficult questions. Have we got an agape attitude? My second question um, is to ask you whether, I hope you've all gotten, I've got one in my pocket, um, the little token which Danny, which Danny gave each of us earlier. I know it's rude to point, but I'm going to ask you if you'll please point to the person next to you and say, as it says on here, remember, Jesus loves you.